Eavesdrop on Experts, a podcast about stories of inspiration and insights. It's where expert types obsess, confess and profess. I'm Chris Hatzis. Let's eavesdrop on experts changing the world. One lecture, one experiment, one interview at a time. If I say big and naughty, your first thought won't be of architecture. Unless, of course, you are Sir Peter Cook, the iconic, influential architect and co-founder of avant-garde architectural group Archigram. As he explains to our host, Louise Bennett, Sir Peter began designing big and naughty architecture as a statement against bland buildings, driven by a desire to be exotic in calm and orderly places. Sir Peter is Emeritus Professor at the University College London, the Royal Academy of Arts and the Frankfurt Stadelschule, with recent works including the construction of his radical art museum in Graz, Austria, the Kunsthaus. Sir Peter Cook visited the University of Melbourne recently to participate in a Melbourne School of Design summer intensive studio examining the spirit of Archigram, 1960s ideas, how they might have been revolutionary and whether they're still relevant today. Sir Peter Cook, welcome to the University of Melbourne. It's so lovely to have you here. Who are you and what are you known for? Um, I'm an architect. I at a very young age, was part of a group called Archigram, which meant architectural gram, uh, which did sort of inventive high-tech architecture, naughty architecture, lots of ideas about throwaway buildings, cities that dissolved, cities that walked, houses that melted, houses that were caravans, really, blah, 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 lots of different ideas. And... uh, we got exhibited and published a lot at an early stage. There were six of us. And then most of us got into te- teaching, and I uh, must have been considered fairly good at it because I started to go up the teaching ladder and uh, I ended up, you know, in charge of schools of architecture. Uh, but in parallel, my career was very odd because in my in my... Only in my sort of mid-40s did I even remotely do any real building. And then in my 50s and beyond, I've done a few buildings, some of which are very known. So my career was sort of in reverse. I was written off as a sort of academic and drawer, person did drawings that went in galleries, and then actually started doing the actual biz. Uh, And as I start being retired as a a full-time academic, I, I'm, I'm carrying on, and I'm 82, uh, though I'm surrounded by people much younger than myself, including my very clever architect wife, uh, who's an interesting architect in her own right, though we don't work together. We, we decided not to because we would drive each other crazy, but we love each other dearly, so that works. And we have a son who is a music producer, uh, Toing and froing to Los Angeles. Uh, in fact, his wiki slot is longer than mine already. And uh, I, I got knighted uh, for both architecture and teaching. For both. For both. Whether I would have got a knighthood just for architecture, I don't know, because who knows? Uh, but I got it for architecture and teaching. And then um, I have for a long time been very networked into a whole international 
I mean, a lot of people who were students of mine, friends of mine, my wife is Israeli, not English. My Most of my friends are from other parts of Europe, hence my dread of Brexit, etc. And uh, I have a lot of, a lot of people in this city were students of mine. And therefore, one, this networking, I think, is very important because you're, the people with whom you discuss these things are scattered everywhere from Reykjavik down to, you know, Chile and, and, and wherever, wherever. May I ask, do you feel any affinity with Peter Cook, the comedian and satirist, no, at all? we were roughly the same uh, generation, but not really at all, no. The reason I ask is obviously you share a name, but also when looking at your work, there seems to be so much humour invested in it. Yes, I think I've become more humorous as I got older. Uh, I've become more interested in people as I got older. Uh, when I was a student and an early days teacher, there was a lot of chit-chat about you know, sociology and so on, which I found incredibly tedious and, and, and you know, done by, by kind of boring people who were being, trying to be clever. I've been over, you know, 50 years of teaching, you start to be an amateur psychologist. You cannot help yourself. And I'm interested, and I've become more and more and more interested in people. I start even, over the last few years, drawing cartoons, which I even include in uh, submissions for competitions. Occasionally, uh, once in a while, we win one. And the cartoons don't seem to put people off. And when I give the public lecture next Tuesday, uh, you will see that I've got a lot of these funny cartoons, which are mostly based on life. And I think uh, I'm fascinated by people. And I've come, you know, I'm surrounded by people from every every which which way, every which place. And uh, not just particularly English people. In fact, I find English people not particularly interesting. But... Uh, I think that if you're interested in buildings and you're interested in people, you are never bored, except in the desert, which I never go near. But if you're on the tram coming up the hill, if you just sit there on your own, you, you, you spot funny little things, you know. And uh, you look out the window, you spot funny little things. You're sitting in a Chinese restaurant, you spot funny little things. You come into a uni. I just came along this corridor now and I saw that there are a lot of people standing at computers, and I think, I wonder if they are robots or they're real people. But I suppose if I hovered outside the toilet or something, I'd start to pick up on the fact they are real people. It's so interesting that you say that because you talk about a society that is probably predominantly these people standing at desks, like automatons, and yet your work is almost alien sometimes. How does do humans create an inspiration for you to create something like the museum in Graz? Well, going to answer that in a roundabout way, that kind of architecture is probably sitting in one's head and is a sort of uh, taste or procedural response. But I knew that site in Graz before we did the competition because I'd taken students to Graz, which is a very interesting architectural city. And there's a dodgy bar that used to be on that site that was open at three in the morning. And I'd been there with Bartlett students in this bar, which is near the red light district. I also, my 
colleague on it, Colin Fournier, at that for, and for a long time had a, a girlfriend who came from Graz. And I'd been to Graz even myself eight times. We knew the site. And that's very interesting because you do a building that looks like it's sort of maybe is out of context, but actually it's very bedded into the context of that. You know the noisy street, you know the quiet street, the dodgy street, the one where people will come off the tram, the, the bit of the site where people will burst out of a narrow street across the bridge and suddenly see the bridge, which is like a table in front of the building but the trees mask it from the right and the heavy trucks come there and all that is running round your head but you're doing your bubble but it's not an abstracted bubble it's a bubble that lands in a certain way with a certain door and a certain back door because it looks like something from under the sea no but it's actually something that lands on that very particular site and even its shape was dictated by the fact that it wasn't actually a straightforward rectangular site. It was a site that had a bit chipped out of the corner of it where we had to keep these old Baroque houses. And the fact that it had that corner made us almost squirt building into the site, allowing two metres fire escape down the side. And that gave it its special shape. And then we had to keep a metal building that was there, uh, 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 the earliest piece of cast ironwork in southern Austria as part of the indigenous culture of the place. But it had come from Sheffield. The bits a hundred years ago had been brought in on the back of donkey carts or however they got stuff from Sheffield. And I thought, ah, right, there's a... <laughs> some characters from England in the 19th century bought their funny bits of metal and a bunch of characters at the very end of the 20th century bring their funny bits of plastic. So, so much for the local indigenous architecture. It Just is the, the product of, of, of stuff arriving and being mixed in with the local. <laughs> so is that how you, the necessity feeds into your creativity? I think that, that you, it's very difficult to, dis, to design even ordinary stuff or interesting stuff, into a vacuum. As soon as somebody says you can only enter from the West or somebody says you've got to stick car parking underneath it or as soon as somebody says, you know, you've got to have uh, special air conditioning because it's expensive works of art that they will only lend if it's... Uh, it's not a bore. It's actually incentive. It, it, it allows you to then concentrate the mind and do something interesting with there's nothing worse than a open square site and you sit looking at it you know, uh, uh, where do we start what do we get off on as soon as there's a restriction a funny and a bridge and a wind and a trees and a noisy tram one side at the, ah now we're getting the gives you, know, you a nudge well it's several nudges simultaneously and then you start to move so then how did you get into architecture? I always wanted to do it. My dad was an army officer and I moved school and town umpteen times. And and there was no architecture in the family. I mean, I, they, they, my parents had both come from poor families and sort of somehow grandest themselves a little bit. And uh, I was, as a kid, uh, my mum had wanted to go to art school but never did. Uh, my dad... Uh, no, he, he didn't even draw. You know, he wrote quite well. But uh, as a kid, I used to play 
hooky from school and go around my, with my father looking at buildings because one of his jobs at the end of the Second World War was as what they called a quartering commandant. He'd fought, God help us, in the First World War, got lots of medals and decided in the Second World War to avoid being posted out to Burma. And he somehow, not having any architectural or surveying training, but already by that time he was a colonel, and he he uh, got this job as quartering commandant. And he took me as a little tiny tot to see Italianate villas in the middle of England that they were going to put parachutists in or airborne groups or tanks. And I would see my... One afternoon, I went with my father to a field somewhere near Leicester, and he looked around this field and he said, oh, I put it here, whatever the it was going to be. And then I think I went back about a couple of months later and there was an enormous POW camp with Italian prisoners in it and watchtowers and stuff. I thought, that's a good game. My dad plays this game when he goes there. He says, we'll put it here. And then and he happens. come back. It was better than, better than Lego, you know. <laughs> Uh, whether that was one incentive, the other thing is is so looking con- subconsciously at these you know funny buildings all over the place. The other was my mum wanted to be an art student, so maybe there's a thread of that going through, and she did funny little flower paintings uh, very precisely. And then there was a particular thing that I do remember very vividly, which was. Going from place to place, we were often in funny sort of English provincial hotels where we would stay or have lunch or whatever. And they always had these etchings on the wall, very typical thing that you get. It says prospect of Winchester from the southeast or something or prospect of Norwich from the north or wherever it happened to be. And you always get these etched lines of buildings with churches and houses and a castle if there was one. And I started to mimic those in in school exercise books. I started to make my own towns like these things. And uh, by the time I was at grammar school, I I got a scholarship to the local art school at 16. I only did O-levels, didn't do A-levels. Fortunately, we had a an art master who was very informed about architecture. And he, there were four of us, that, that in that year at the grammar school in Bournemouth, who all wanted to do architecture. And he fed us information. He said, look, there's a college down the road and you can get scholarships to it. And I did, and I went at 16 to do architecture. Already at 14, being had bitten the bug, and I went to the public library and I took every book about architecture I could find, of which there was quite a lot. And I was reading Pevsner, which is a famous sort of historian, basic historian. I was reading Le Corbusier at the age of 15. I'd started looking at modern architecture because as a kid, I'd gone around persuading my parents to take me to see, you know, Roman ruins, cathedrals. I made balsa wood cathedrals as a kid. Uh, I could do that. And I'd done the historic bit because I'd lived in historic towns like Norwich and so on. Uh, So I was already getting into modern. And then the funny thing was the local architecture school was a remnant sort of 19th century school. It was the only place in England where you were learnt, you you were taught to draw all all the classical orders of architecture by proportion. 
You had to go and measure churches with bits of lead round tracery, and then you were you were fed Victorian books about the grammar of ornament and stuff. It was actually an old-fashioned school. But I'd already been reading about Le Cabuse and looking at South American gardens in Brazil and stuff. So that was weird because I sort of it was a loop. I'd looked at the old, been fascinated by the old stuff, almost gone through that, and then was pushed back into it. And then it was a very old-fashioned school, but I was an enthusiast. And then I did a couple of years in a local office before going to the posh school in London, which was the AA, and uh, enjoying myself amazingly, although, and having some very famous teachers. But I look back at some of the old Bournemouth stuff, and it was actually a little bit more like the stuff I did later than the correct stuff I did as a diligent and good student at the Architectural Association. So my nuttier side was already there, though I had, I think, you know, having come from never actually doing a university degree because the AA does not give degrees, uh, I ended up, you know, having three professorships and, 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 and adjudicating people who are doing PhDs. Uh, I came into it via the back door. I have, for donkey's years, even when I've acquired professorships, still regarded and, and done a lot of teaching, taught thousands of people, including, you know, you know some of the professors here. And, uh, I still have... Almost now, regard myself as a designer who happens to be doing a bit of teaching, than actually an academic. And even the books I do are kind of really chatting about designing. I'm not an academic. I, 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 I'm not much into theory. I invent theory, but I'm not much into it. In the business of reconstruction, I think that universities spend an enormous, I mean, everywhere, spend an enormous amount of time saying we have to restructure the curriculum. Are we going to do this with the curriculum? Are we going to do that with, you know, whether we are faculty or a department or all that stuff? I don't think it matters that much. You can have a bum curriculum. You can have an awful curriculum, which you can pick endless holes in. But if you've got enthusiastic people teaching, if they're prepared to really go with it, if they're prepared to really try and understand the students and then enthuse them, you can even work a crap curriculum in a bad building in a hot, cold or flooded town with people who have or have not had good previous education. If you can get them enthused, you can get them rolling, you can find out what turns them on to put a solution. It can be all right, and you can take the most elegant building in the most interesting town with the most sophisticatedly reared students, and it still can be... It won't be the worst, of course, but it can be dull. So do you think your interest in people has a very strong effect on your creativity? I think it has in recent times. I, I, I will, when I do the public lecture on Tuesday, I will talk about a building we built in Australia, actually, up, up at Bond University, which is their architecture school. And uh, I did, uh, because I'd done it before elsewhere, I, I was persuaded by my colleagues to do cartoons about bearing in mind that this is a, this is a unique opportunity. You are not only an architect, you have been a regular educator. You've run two schools and then you get a competition 
for designing an architecture school. You're the guy sitting the other side of the desk as well. So you have you are in effect the client as well as the designer. Actually, with the art museum in in Graz, I had also run the Institute of Contemporary Arts in London for two or three years. So I had been the I'd run a art museum. And then you know what are all the funny things. So basically, you don't just design by the book. You don't just go through the book and say, we've got to have one of those, six of those. The door has to be in a certain place. You know the anecdotes. You know that in an art gallery, the big hassle is not just getting the stuff in the right place on the wall. It's dealing with the next exhibition arriving before the customs officer has got there. And the existing exhibition hasn't been struck. So you've got to allow that. You've got boxes of catalogues arriving halfway in the afternoon but an opening that evening it's the hassles that you have to sort out same with an architecture school how do you get different groups of people moving how do and my cartoons were actually anecdotal our references when we were sitting in london designing this thing you know gavin and i sit there show you remember that funny corridor they got at ucla in Los Angeles, that's a good idea because you can look at the crit going on, but you don't interfere with the crit because it's like, that's not a bad... You know that funny basement at the Bartlett where they make funny things at poker? That's not a bad idea. You know that big room at Cooper Union in New York? That's quite an interesting one. It's different from the one at Harvard where the roof does something different. But the great thing about the Cooper one is these funny little rooms just off it. And you so you use actual examples from your own experiences and you you sort of stick them in your back pocket there's all anecdotal things so instead of doing the rule book you say funny things go on in architecture schools don't they what happens if you're the chief big and you've got a boring person coming in your direction is there a secondary means of escape can you get the hell out (laughs) before the boring bastard gets there which leads us to put two bridges over the central space, one of which is for escape. <laughs> Things like, can you watch the students without interfering with them unless you want to? Can you invent spaces where they can do special non-curricular things and also use them as spaces to hang out or have a tete-a-tete or sit and... They're for humans. They're for humans because it's human, not just institutional. And that's where it becomes really, really interesting, I think. Now, whether everybody understands the significance of all this, sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. Uh, at the very lowest, you you enjoy it yourself. You think, well, somebody will get the hang of this, maybe. And or they may misuse it. And I'm, I mean, you know, if you're living in London, half the buildings we are in are misused. You know, we work in a little office in a, God help us, a Jacobean building. You didn't know there were any of those left in Islington it, uh, where I bumped my head because Jacobeans were smaller than me. Uh, but inside the rooms are, are people at computers. Well, the Jacobeans probably wouldn't have even... Where does this take us? People have design studios in old churches. They have film studios in old churches they have you know 
lofts in cigar factories, whatever, 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 and actually sometimes to great advantage. So I once said that the Graz Kunsthaus, this art museum that we did, if it's turned into a car showroom, I wouldn't worry. I don't think it has to be that precious. So it's a car showroom. I really want to go back a little bit to what you were saying about creativity. What I glean from that is creativity being superseded by corporate. Well, I mean, yes. To cut a long story, yes, I think that is a a really serious cultural issue today. But it's not universal. And I think what may happen, like if you take... Obvious issues of history. The, the cinema came in and said pe- people said it would kill the theatre. Well, it did for a while, but then it regrouped and people with theatre training, I think why there's so many Brit actors that are so successful is that there's a very good training in the theatre and they become very good at movies. People said at the moment, they're saying the internet will kill locale. But I'm not so sure at a certain point. I mean, already it's very interesting statistically that Kindle, the book re- is going downhill and the number of books being sold is going uphill, contrary to what would, be, would have been the perceived wisdom five, ten years ago. Is there any application then for the thought that perhaps computer programs are killing architecture? Yes. Where do you think drawing sits in all of this? Well, I think drawing is, has a spontaneity that, you know, I if I take out this pen and I let it drift around the paper, it has an immediate spontaneity. I can't even predict what my hand might next do. People doing the same operation on a computer, the computer tends to be correct. You can program it to be nearly, cor- nearly not correct, but it still has certain obs- ob- observances. I think... Me drifting around with the fountain pen and somebody with a computer who can then extrapolate that is a perfect combination. But at the point of creativity, there, there are many, many layers of argument going on. I have friends and colleagues who would say, no, the computer now can create things that your pen could never imagine. And that is to some extent true. On the other hand, I think the willfulness inherent in the drifting pen on the paper. There's a certain level of, of instinctive creative willfulness, which is a very precious thing. I don't think everybody can use it, but it's important in all levels. When we were having a conversation this morning, somewhere along the line, that the, 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 the similarity between uh, orchestral scoring and urban design which is where, and, 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 and John Warwicker, you know, the graphic guy, maybe you don't, he's a professor at the art school. He's a very famous English graphic designer of a company called Tomato. I've been spending a couple of mornings together. And the conversation then between us, we were talking about cause and effect and, and, and space. He introduced the thing of, of the issue of silence or space between pieces, between objects. And then I drew the analogy with symphonic scoring where you will set up a bit of a theme and then you'll let it drift 
soft, and then you will and you will have quiet passage, and then somehow there'll be a hint of something else happening, which then develops up. If you think of that extrapolated into space, into avenues and terraces, or monuments, or intensities of towers together as against less intense groupings of towers. Think of it compositionally, or think of landscapes, or think of Japanese gardens where you are led to a platform from which, if you take a certain view line, you see a special object. You move towards a special object, and from that point, you see the tea house. You then move towards the tea house and your state of contemplation is different from outside the piece of stone. And then you, in other words, it's theatre, it's trajectory, it's kinetic, it's compositional. And these sorts of composition, how a, an author will, or a film writer will introduce a character at a certain moment in the narrative where that character will develop a persona that becomes more and more important vis-a-vis the other characters. Same way with by a composer introducing a sub-theme. You're the artist then taking the audience with you on the journey. Yeah, but it's, it's also a question of timing, positioning, spacing, iconography, to what extent something is special. Now, that almost comes back to architecture. If you just give a very bland piece of architecture, then you're putting an enormous amount of onus on the inhabitant to do something special, which they may not be up to. The result is boredom into boredom. And I think there are too many people standing at computers and in bland spaces. And provided with bland lunches and... And expected to keep motivated. Yeah, but maybe then then they... What do they do? They have expensive holidays in Bali. Like they're Australian, it seems to me. They go off to Bali and do all sorts of naughty things and then come back. Speaking of naughty, I've heard your work described as big and naughty. Yeah? How do you feel about that? Great. Pleased. Splattered. What makes it big and naughty? Because it sort of deviates from the norm. I mean, it's nothing. It's not, it's, it's, a, it's also a bit of an easy categorization. You know, there's, there's, I mean, in this town, you have a lot of buildings done by firms like Ashton Raggett McDoodle, uh, the Lion family. There's some buildings I know. And uh, I, 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 you know, they're not exactly, t- I think my stuff is more straightforward than theirs. But I understand their naughtiness. I also knew when he was alive, Peter Gorrigan, who was their teacher. And I sort of know where it's coming from. Well, I think I know where it's coming from. And I think I think their buildings, even if they're hated by a lot of people, I think they're doing a great job in, in Melbourne. They make Melbourne a bit special. I'm not saying every building should be the same. But that gives Melbourne a bit of a, <laughs> bit of a twist. And it goes with a town that has a very good... Uh, series of restaurants that also have lots of things to give it a twist. I mean, Melbourne should not underestimate itself. And I've travelled to lots of places. So what are your hopes then, architecturally, and perhaps for humanity, for the future? Well, I wouldn't get... I mean, I'm not... I just hope people cheer up a bit. I hope they get less circumspect. I hope there's a... 
another generation. And it, the impetus may come from somewhere we don't expect. So Peter Cook, it has been an absolute rich adventure thinking about and talking about your incredible architecture. Thank you so much for speaking with me today. Thank you. Thank you to Sir Peter Cook, Emeritus Professor at University College London, the Royal Academy of Arts, and the Frankfurt Startelschule. And thanks to our reporter, Louise Bennett. Eavesdrop on Experts, Stories of Inspiration and Insights, was made possible by the University of Melbourne. This episode was recorded on January 31, 2019. You'll find a full transcript on the Pursuit website. Audio engineering by me, Chris Hatzis. Co-production, Sylvie Van Wall and Dr. Andy Horvath. Eavesdrop on Experts is licensed under Creative Commons, copyright 2019, the University of Melbourne. Drop us a review on iTunes so other people can find our podcast easily. And check out the rest of the Eavesdrop episodes in our archive. I'm Chris Hatzis, producer and editor. Join us again next time for another Eavesdrop on Experts.